This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. Hey, it's Martine. I am so excited to be coming back to Post Reports very soon. So you might have heard, I've been working on a new podcast. It's called The Empty Grave of Comrade Bishop. If you haven't yet checked it out, you'll be able to listen to the first two episodes of the series right here in your Post Reports feed tomorrow and Saturday. In the meantime, I just wanted to say thank you to all of the guest hosts in the newsroom who have taken such good care of you while I've been away. Today, you will hear from my colleague, Kevin Seif. All right. Here's the show. In February of last year, I was outside of a comfort inn in Nashville. I was there to meet a woman named Magdalena Perez. Magdalena is 43 years old. She works in the hotel's laundry room, and she was on a break. So she was wearing her blue work uniform and touching a red quilted rosary hanging around her neck. She sat down at a picnic table next to the hotel parking lot and took out her phone. It might have been one of the most important moments of her life. She joined a Zoom call, and a man's face flashed on the screen of her phone and then disappeared. Magdalena speaks Spanish. We'll use a voiceover to translate. No, no, no se oye. Nada. Solo entra la llamada, pero no se oye. No, 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 no. I can't hear anything. The call is coming in, but you can't hear. You can't hear anything. They're not telling me anything. Ay, Dios mío. I can't lose more time from work. I can't. No puedo. Magdalena was grinding her teeth and frantically pushing buttons on her phone screen. That Zoom call was a court hearing. The face that flashed on the screen for a second was the judge who would decide when she could see her daughter again. They had been separated at the U.S.-Mexico border in 2017, and now a foster family in California was fighting to keep the child. I'm calling the lawyer so I can ask if they're already at the hearing, and they're not answering. Yeah, I'm still here outside. I could get in, but I couldn't hear anything. Did they cancel the hearing? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. It's Thursday, November 2nd. I'm Kevin Seif, a reporter at The Post. For years, I've covered families who were separated at the border during the Trump administration. But Magdalena's story reveals another set of complications that no one was prepared for. The possibility that a judge could question whether reuniting a mother and her child is the right thing to do. The story started in 2017. That's when Magdalena came to the United States from Guatemala with Mildred and Wendy. Back in her town called Cubulco, Magdalena mostly worked in the wheat and cornfields. She raised her daughters alone after her husband left the family. When the girls were small, Magdalena said, she testified against a man who was charged with sexual assault. The town was small enough that everyone knew everyone, and Magdalena feared for the safety of her family upon his release. So she took her chance and borrowed $10,000 to pay a smuggler to take her and her daughters to the U.S. Back then, Mildred was nine and Wendy was 16. When they prepared to cross into Arizona, Magdalena had a plan. She would seek asylum. She believed she had a strong case. And then the family would head to Tennessee where they had relatives. So when she saw a group of Border Patrol agents, she turned herself and her daughters in. What Magdalena didn't know was that by then, in late 2017, 
the Trump administration had begun quietly separating children from their parents along stretches of the border, regardless of their asylum claims. That's what happened to Magdalena and her two daughters. After being detained by Border Patrol, an agent told Magdalena to step outside of the cell they were in, alone. He then placed shackles around Magdalena's hands and ankles and told her to say goodbye to her daughters. There was no need for my daughters to see them put chains on my hands and feet. As if I were a criminal, I came in search for a better life for my daughters. How long until I can see my children, she asked. What will happen to them? Magdalena said she wasn't told anything. She was escorted to a bus headed for a detention center more than 100 miles away. I sat on the bus with my eyes closed, thinking about what I left behind. I suffered. What I was going through, with my eyes closed, I saw my girls. I looked at the smallest one and how she looked at me. That night at the detention center, she said she heard shrieks of mothers who'd also been separated from their children. Under this policy, the government separated as many as 5,500 migrant children from their parents. I should say that I'm describing this policy in the past tense, but there's now a chance that it could return. Trump, the overwhelming Republican frontrunner for president, has said he would consider separating families once again. Here he is in May at a CNN town hall. ...was the zero-tolerance immigration policy that separated families at the border. If you are re-elected, are you ruling out instituting that? Well, when you have that policy, people don't come. If the family hears that they're going to be separated, they love their family, they don't come. So I know it sounds harsh, but if you remember... Magdalena's story is a reminder of how flawed that policy was the first time around. Back in 2018, as more families were separated, it became clear that the Trump administration had no plan to reunite them. In fact, in most cases, the federal government lost track of the children completely. There was no list of where children had been sent. And that was the case with Magdalena's daughters, Mildred and Wendy. The federal government didn't know where they were. Eventually, it turned out they'd been placed into a foster home. The foster care agency that had legal custody of Mildred and Wendy was called Crittenden Services for Children and Families. The nonprofit receives millions of dollars in federal funding to house migrant children. Crittenden sent the girls to the home of Jorge and Maria Pia in Riverside, California, not far from Los Angeles. It's a neat two-story house on a street with palm trees. The transition was hard for Magdalena's girls, especially for Mildred. She was a skinny nine-year-old with long brown hair. In the beginning, Wendy said that Mildred barely ate or spoke that she cried all the time. But day by day, she embraced life in California. She tried sushi. She danced a bad bunny at a wedding. In videos that Maria Pia, the foster mother, posted on Facebook, Mildred slid down a water slide in their backyard. Back in the Arizona detention center, Magdalena was fighting to locate her two children. She asked prison guards, lawyers, immigration judges, but no one had an answer. I didn't know anything. Where were they? So I called the Guatemalan consulate, and they said they'd look into it and find out where my girls were. I called them again, and that's when they told me, your girls 
are in a shelter in California. Eventually, Magdalena was ordered to be deported to Guatemala. It was only when she returned to her small village that she was able to reconnect with her children by phone. I bought a cell phone that could make video calls, and I watched Mildred walk through the farms that were near the house where they were staying. The first time I saw her, she cried. She started crying. But on those calls, Magdalena said she wasn't alone with her children. She said that Maria Pia, the foster mother, was on them as well. She said that Pia told her that the foster care agency required that she supervise the calls and that they had to be cut off after 20 minutes. We haven't been able to verify if that's a real policy. Maria Pia didn't respond to multiple requests for comment. In Crittenden, the foster care agency declined to comment. Magdalena struggled to watch her daughters grow up in a different family. She could feel that her own relationship with Mildred was fading. Mildred even began calling her foster mom, mom. Mildred was with foster parents and she was losing her love towards me. Sometimes she called, but then days went by when she didn't. I began to cry because the calls weren't coming in like they should have been. I asked her why. I asked the foster mom, and she told me that Mildred was the one who didn't want to talk. I doubt that. I thought she was the one taking away my daughter's love. I said that to her, because you're with Mildred, my daughter has taken away her love from me and gave it to you. After talking to Magdalena, I wanted to hear Mildred's version, so I called her. Hola, Mildred, ¿cómo estás? I asked Mildred what it was like when she first arrived at the foster home in California. She said that at first the foster parents were strangers. She hardly spoke to them. But then that changed. There were other foster kids from all over Latin America in the house. And Mildred said the foster parents treated the kids like their own. But at the same time, Mildred worried about her mom and whether she would ever return to the U.S. again. I also spoke to Wendy. She was older, watching her little sister struggle up close. She said that somehow Mildred had to gain someone's trust, had to feel love. And Wendy said the foster family was there for Mildred. And Mildred, Wendy said, started to believe that the foster parents were her parents. During all of this, Magdalena tried to cope. She reluctantly signed dense legal paperwork, allowing Mildred and Wendy to remain at the foster home, without realizing that she was actually giving up permanent custody. Later, she described that confusion in an affidavit. I signed those papers because I could hear the desperation in my daughter's voices when I spoke to them, and because I wanted my daughters to be with the family until they could be returned to me. Living alone in Guatemala... Magdalena could feel herself spiraling. She dreamt that she was brushing Mildred's hair, 
She planted two papaya trees and tended to them as if they were her daughters. Sembré un palo de papaya. I planted a papaya tree, a little one. I watered it every day, brought a dirt, fertilizer, everything. I said that I'm going to grow this plant as if it was Mildred. Yes, I will grow these plants as if I am raising my girl. But in 2022, more than four years after their separation, out of the blue, Magdalena got a phone call from a lawyer in California. The Biden administration was issuing her a visa. After the break, what was meant to be a family reunion faces a new dilemma. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra Processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity, all with AI-powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com slash itheroes. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. After Joe Biden's election, he created a task force to reunite the families separated by his predecessor. Magdalena went to the U.S. Embassy in Guatemala, where an American diplomat pasted a visa in her passport that said in all caps, Authorized Family Reunification. In May 2022, Magdalena left Guatemala and headed to Nashville. Wendy was already there by then. She was 21 and had aged out of foster care at 18. She'd moved to Nashville to be with relatives there. Magdalena couldn't wait to see her daughters. Mildred was now 13, and Magdalena tried to imagine what it would feel like to hold her. But when she landed in Nashville, she was confused. Only Wendy was waiting for her at the airport. I thought, my daughter will be there, waiting for me as planned. This is a family reunification. She'll be there. When I got off the plane, I just wanted to see her, hug her. But no. Mildred wasn't there. Magdalena's lawyer explained that she was still in California, still living with Maria Pia and the Foster family. Even though Magdalena was now a legal U.S. resident, she didn't have custody of her own child. To regain it, Magdalena would need to prove to a judge in California that reuniting was in her daughter's best interest. The judge, Kenneth J. Fernandez, said she'd need to make her case in court. Meanwhile, Pia began raising doubts about Magdalena in interviews with a social worker that were shared with the court. She said that Magdalena was probably living with undocumented immigrants. She told the social worker that she wanted authorities to investigate Magdalena's situation further. And that shocked Magdalena. Wasn't it obvious, she wondered, that she was the right person to care for her own daughter? I don't understand why they're denying me like this. Everyone knows that as a mom, you can be responsible for your children. Flat out, they think I am not capable of raising my children. 
Magdalena decided she couldn't wait for a court ruling. She needed to see Mildred. So last November, she flew to California. Mildred was standing in the driveway of the foster home when she arrived. I saw her, and she stared at me. And I said, does she not know me or what? But then the foster mom said, she's your mom, she's your mom, she's your mother. That's when Mildred jumped and hugged me. Over a few days, the two of them bonded. Mildred said, Mom, we haven't seen each other for so long. We spent some quiet days together. She was like, come on, let's dance. She's so affectionate. And then we went to the mall. She knew the city, how to speak English. She was ahead of me. After the visit, Mildred told everyone that she wanted to live with her mom, even the judge in California. She wrote to him saying, I would be happier living with my mom in Tennessee than with my foster family. But their custody case was still tied up in court. The next hearing was months away, in February. Magdalena flew back to Nashville and dreamt of her daughter's arrival. She spent her days working in the laundry room of the Comfort Inn. Next to her bed, she taped a note from Mildred. It read, In spite of the difficulties we've had together, I know the two of us appreciate each other. She bought clothes for Mildred and asked Wendy to help, too. I was just waiting for her to arrive. I bought her a pair of flip-flops. I had them since the first hearing. I prepared. Wendy went out and shopped for her, too. She got her sandals. She got her a dress, things for her hair. The February court hearing would be over Zoom. That's the day that I met Magdalena on her break from work when she was trying to log on to that hearing on her phone. She'd rehearsed the line she would tell the judge, I promise I can take care of my daughter. I have permission to be in this country legally. I have permission to work here. But sitting outside the hotel, 10 minutes passed, then 20, then 30, then Zoom froze. Her phone couldn't connect. And then her lawyers called her. I could see her face tense up. Without Magdalena there, the judge had postponed the case by another three months. It wasn't only that she couldn't connect to the hearing, the judge also wanted to further investigate Magdalena. Was she living in appropriate housing? Was she making enough money to support her child? Could she be a responsible parent? Hearing this from her lawyers, Magdalena broke down. She interrupted them. The mere truth is that I've had enough. I don't want any more papers. Don't ask me for any more papers because I'm not going to give any more information. If what I presented isn't enough, I can't. I don't have more information. Where am I going to get more? Years of struggle and anguish had caught up with her. What I want is for my daughter to be handed over to me. And that is all. I don't want more investigations, no. In any case, I'm not a criminal. My conscience is clear. I know who I am, where I come from. And what's more, this is my daughter. Please, no more investigations. Over the next few months, Magdalena constantly thought of Mildred. There were reminders everywhere. Like when she took a bus to the store that handled cash transfers. It was a regular stop for her because she was still paying off the smuggling fee for when she migrated to the U.S. with her daughters back in 2017. 
She still owed several thousand dollars. Above the cashier, the sign said in Spanish, Attention, parents, please watch your children. Magdalena daydreamed about flying to California and screaming at the judge, What if I took your child from you? But then finally, the next Zoom hearing arrived. It was May 11th, and this time Magdalena was able to access the hearing. She waited for her turn to make her case, but it never came. Instead, after 15 minutes, there was a pause, and then the judge ruled. First, the language was confusing to her, but then it became clear. It was in Magdalena's favor. She and her daughter could once again live together. Magdalena collapsed into tears. A month later, in June, Magdalena welcomed Mildred at the airport. She wore a red dress and held balloons and a sign in English that said, Welcome, my girl. We love you. Mildred was wearing jeans and new Nike basketball shoes. She hugged Magdalena outside the baggage claim. It was, for a moment, exactly the scene Magdalena had imagined. But Mildred was distant. She stared out the car window on the way home. I called Mildred to hear how she felt now that she was back with her mother. She says she made the right decision, that Magdalena was her mom and she needed to be with her. But she also missed her foster family. She mostly spent her days in Magdalena's apartment alone while her mom worked at the hotel. Sometimes she got angry. She said there are moments when she asks, why did God give me this mom? But then she said those moments pass. And Magdalena, she was struggling to rebuild their relationship. She said to Wendy, I can't tell what's wrong with her. For a while, that was the last I'd heard of the family. And then not too long ago, after the story was first published by The Post, I got a message from Magdalena with a video attached. You can see Magdalena in a red dress dancing with Mildred. Mildred is embracing her mom and has a sheepish smile. Magdalena rests her head on Mildred. They look happy, or at least like they're trying to be. I think it was Magdalena's way of letting me know that things were getting better. That after all these years, after one separation and then another, she and Mildred were doing okay. Kevin Seif is a correspondent for The Post in Mexico City. This episode was produced by Arjun Singh and mixed by Sean Carter. It was edited by Monica Campbell, thanks to Renita Jablonski and Cecilia Favela. If you want to show your support for the show, please subscribe to The Washington Post. It's a great way to help make more of this kind of journalism possible. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra Processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity. All with AI-powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com slash itheroes.